It's a big weekend in Loma Linda with the Alumni Postgraduate Convention. If any of you are, are here for that, we welcome you to our class. We are studying the Book of Revelation. We've been doing it for <coughs> not quite a thousand years, but we've, <coughs> we've done it for a while. <laughs> and we, are, we, got, we have been stuck now in Revelation 20. So today I'm hoping that we will be able to to extricate ourselves from Revelation 20 and, and move on. Well, we have commented a little on world events here, and there, are, there is still, of course, a very, a very tense and very uh, fright, frightening situation in Libya. And, uh, and it, it looked like it was kind of clear what would happen, how, how it would end, that, it would, that Libya would be able to to get rid of their tyrant uh, uh, the way the way the neighboring countries ha- uh, have but uh, but it doesn't look quite as as obvious right now just uh, just very difficult situation for for the libyan people of course difficult too because one has been many people have of course been been uh, sort of hijacked by by the project of their their ruler so there are divided loyalties too. <coughs> On a happier note, there is a world championship in skiing in, Nor- in Oslo, Norway. <laughs> and I see my Swedish friends here, and I want to remind just <coughs> because we are we are fierce rivals when it comes to cross-country skiing. <coughs> and um, well, the Norwegians aren't doing too bad. <laughs> Okay, let's go to Revelation 20. <clears throat> I want to do a clarifying retrospective. I hope it will be clarifying. That is not uh, to be advertised too boldly, but uh, I would like us to to look back on what we have, uh, some key things, uh, and I'd like to try to attempt a clarification with respect to timeline with respect to a key concept in the story and with respect to the plot, the story, what is it all about, you might say. Uh, so that's, that's our, my, my, uh, what's on the menu today. And we will do this timeline, the timeline retrospective. Clarification with respect to timeline will not relate itself to specific historical uh, events, <coughs> but just to the to the uh, broad picture, and and that would mean uh, with reference to the to the thousand years in Revelation twenty, were events that should be assigned to premillennial events and events that are after the thousand years. So the thousand years is sort of a a, a key a key uh, dividing uh, uh, element here. So. Uh, my first, uh, the first uh, issue here will be uh, to assign the second coming to a specific spot on our timeline. And it's quite surprising, even for a seasoned reader, that I think I have become, uh, after reading this book many, many times, it's still quite surprising how little there is that is explicit about the second coming in the book of Revelation. There are other books that speak more extensively. Other books in the New Testament highlight the second coming explicitly 
more than revelation. Now, uh, I would say that revelation highlights the second coming implicitly in a, new, in, in a number of places. But here we will just do the explicit uh, aspect of the second coming. And this one is, is certainly unambiguous. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. And this text comes right where there is a prologue in the book of Revelation, the first five verses or so. First, uh, yeah, I'd say the first five verses. And then there is an epilogue in the book of Revelation. So this is right after the prologue. Soon as the prologue is over, there it is, the second coming, that he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. And then there isn't that much... Uh, you know, explicit. Well, there is something maybe in Revelation 14, uh, but uh, here is another one that is unambiguously explicit. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Who is talking in that sentence? This, the talking subject here must be Jesus. I am coming quickly. So does the uh, book of Revelation teach the second coming? Is, uh, does the book of Revelation seem to affirm that Jesus will return in the beginning of the book, at the end of the book explicitly, and many times implicitly throughout the book? So where are we going to put the second coming with reference to our timeline? The timeline uh, being the before, uh, the crucial point being before or after the thousand years. That's uh, that's the, the question then. So <clears throat> to answer that question, I would like us to, uh, to go broad. It seems to me we need to go broad. <clears throat> and, to, and I will make the assumption or I will uh, argue that on the point of the, where the second coming belongs, uh, the uh, biblical authors, the New Testament authors are in, are in broad agreement that they all seem to be sort of reading off the same canvas on the question of the second coming. Now, many of you believe that the book of Revelation and the, book, uh, the Gospel of John uh, have been written by the same person. Uh, I could ask for a show of hands. How many of you believe that? Well, the, there is a great majority believing that. Many scholars uh, do not believe that. <coughs> uh, but <coughs> it's, it's a defensible belief. And, and it is the view held by the early church. Most people, not all of the early church fathers, but most of the early church fathers thought that the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation were uh, authored by the same person. And, and I myself think that you can make a persuasive argument for that. The reason why many people think that, that they weren't written by the same person is because the language is extremely different. The vocabulary is in some places quite different, and the, the, the way, the sort of, the style of writing is different. But, but the genre of literature is different too, because in the Gospel of John you have a gospel, you have a story, a narration, and in the book of Revelation, you have a very different type of literature that has m much more, many more allusions to the Old Testament and so on. So, so uh, I don't think one should feel 
feel defeated by believing that that uh, the same person might be behind the, these books. Now, to believe that helps our argument somewhat. To believe that the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John are closely related, that helps our argument somewhat. So I will go to the Gospel of John here. Here is Jesus talking in the Gospel of John. One comment on the Gospel of John before we read the text. Many people who read the Gospel of John thinks that the Gospel of John does not have much of an eschatology, that the Gospel of John, of all the Gospels, is the Gospel least interested in the future, least interested in, in, in sort of end-time events and so on, that uh, the Gospel of John, this is terminology that you will hear if you read, uh, uh, what should I say, academic literature on the Gospel of John, that academicians will say that the Gospel of John has a realized eschatology. Not an eschatology related to the future, but an eschatology related to the present. Jesus has already come. It is the coming, the first coming of Jesus. The presence of Jesus in the world that matters in the Gospel of John, rather than mapping him out and sort of putting him outside the world, you might say. So uh, that's one of the... Uh, so. Uh, <coughs> Now, is that true? Does the Gospel of John uh, only have realized eschatology? Well, let's read the, some text here. Uh, here is Jesus in the Gospel of John uh, at the foot washing. This is where he will kneel down and wash his disciples' feet. And John, who is the, nar the narrator in the Gospel of John, he is omniscient with respect to what goes on in the mind of Jesus. He knows whatever goes on in the mind of Jesus. He is able to tell us that. Listen to this one. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, into Jesus' hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, I just want, you to do, uh, I want us to do the spatial parameters of that verse. There is a movement in that text. So let's map it out, the spatial parameters. What does it say? So he had come from where? Here. And he must have gone. And then where did he go? So he must have come here. He is talking. Where is he talking when he is uh, saying this? He's standing here talking. So what should we call that? Earth, I suppose. And then where is he going? So there, are spa there is a spatial sort of movement in that text, an awareness on the part of Jesus. He knew that he had come from God. He knew he was going back to God. You know, and then he, with that awareness, then he proceeds to do the foot washing. Now, John 17, verse 13. Jesus is now not... Now we're not just listening to the narrator. Now Jesus is speaking in the first person. But now he's praying. This is the, 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 the amazing prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have joy, my joy made complete in themselves. Where is Jesus stay, standing when he's saying this? He's standing here. And he is going where? He's going somewhere. It sounds like he's going, you know, I am coming to you. So, so uh, <clears throat> we are just trying to add up the, 
uh, some parameters here or some, some raw material for the second coming. In John 14, 1 to 3, some of you have done uh, Sunday school or Sabbath school or Pathfinder or whatever uh, in the various, uh, uh, various communions, but many people, many of you, whom, how many of you know this, these verses by heart? Okay, let's test you. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Jesus is speaking, let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house there are many mansions and so on. You know that there is, there is a reason why some people have found such comfort in these verses, of course, because our hearts are often very troubled. And here is one of the most reassuring passages on eschatology, this is the most eschatological passage in the Gospel of John. Of all the eschatology in the Gospel of John, this is, this is the crispest there is. In my Father's house there are many places to live in. Otherwise I would have told you. I am going now to prepare a place for you. And after I have gone and prepared you a place, I shall return to take you to myself so that you may be with me where I am. So, now more spatial parameters. So let's do the rest of the story. I ha he has come from God, and he has been to the earth, and he is going back to God, and he is coming back to earth, and what more? So that you, so here, so, so is that how it is? It's a lot of traveling here. Frequent flyers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at that. <clears throat> so, but the Gospel of John is doing that. Am I, am I making it up? Doesn't, the, doesn't, there seem to be quite, doesn't this seem to be quite non-gainsayable, as uh, you might say? So he is sort of mapping it out for us. Now, the only question here would be this part. What he means by that, so that I shall return to take you to myself... So, can you, could you, uh, can we argue, I'm going to give myself a little more room here. So, I just want to, to argue, or to let us look at that, that he is going. So, could you say with a high degree of certainty that when he comes back, there is still that one last leg of the journey? That he will, that that coming back uh, is not, you know, that the movement here is still that he will come and, and that you will go somewhere else. The, or do you see what I'm trying to say? Because it could end here. Jesus could end here. And the human journey in the book of Revelation ends on earth. So, well, that's the movement in the text. Isn't that the movement in the text? That I am going back. I am go. So here, so here he is. He's going there. He's going there to prepare a place. When he has prepared a place, he's coming back, and then he's going to take you to where I am. That's, that's the kind of movement in the text. Uh, so, you know, so with those kinds of, of, uh, of ideas, of course, there is quite a lot of eschatology in the, in the Gospel of John. It's not like it is bereft of eschatology or it is all saying, all putting Jesus sort of in an earthly paradigm here. The, the issue of where you go in the book of Revelation is more ambiguous than in the Gospel of John. 
the need we have in the book of Revelation is that this movement is actually clearer in the Gospel of John than it will be in the book of Revelation. It's my, my sense of it. Now, what does the book of Revelation do that the Gospel of John does not do? Just to put in, is the journey, is the journey now over? <laughs> so, so here... There it is, the end of the journey. Now, is there any doubt about that, that the end of the journey is earthly in the book of Revelation? In the, in the Gospel of John, this is not, it is not completed in this way in the Gospel of John. So, so my, you know, this is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, this is quite a, quite a, a, a map of, of, of the divine action and of, of what Jesus is proposing. Now, there are two, two terms then that, that are interesting here. Uh, that's where Jesus is talking about where I am. So that they may be where I am. And the, and the spatial referent for that, what does he mean when he talks about where I am? And he says it again in this very, very uh, much uh, uh, valued text in John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So where is the where I am on our map here? Where should we put where I am? So that they may be with me where I am. Is where I am here or is it here? So they may... so. He, go, he came from here. He came here. He goes here. He comes back here. Uh, and then, uh, where I am? Where is where I am? Yeah. Okay. Well, that would be my, my sense of this, that that, that is what, the, where I am is, has a heavenly reference point. And then, and then uh, uh, there are a couple more texts. Let's do that first and then see what, where we could put, if we can put this together. Here is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> I've told, uh, told you before that I grew up in a home where there was a lot of Bible reading <clears throat> and just extremely tedious Bible reading, if I may say so. It's uh, hours and hours of it <laughs> on, sa- on Saturday or Sabbath mornings. Um, it was quite a marathon because we we were the only Adventist family in our village, and and uh, and we uh, had Bible study first uh, when we were small. We had it as children with my mother, which was quite nice. It was really my mother is a very sweet person, and and she tried to to tailor it to our level, but my. My father's sensitivity to his audience was much less. <laughs> but, but the Bible was read. You know, the Bible was read. And I, I knew Bible verses by heart before I could read myself. And I probably knew this text uh, somewhat by heart. <clears throat> For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever." The ending of that text 
there is a where I am sort of text. So we will be with the Lord. Be with the Lord in in First Thessalonians. So, so these two texts, the text in John, where I am, and then to be with the Lord. In Paul, I mean, the text in Paul, the text in John, they seem to, to head in the same direction. You will be with the Lord. The question is the spatial, the spatial parameters. You will be with the Lord where? That's the, this the issue. So here, the options that this text gives us is that Jesus comes and we go up, or the redeemed, they go up to meet him in the air. Then, where do they go after that? Here, down, or up? Now, believing in Christian eschatology is no joke, because there are such big spatial movements here. It, is, it completely defeats all the sort of conventions we might have, you know, about, about the present earthly existence. It seems to me very difficult to be a believer in the New Testament without being a diehard supernaturalist. It seems to me to be quite quite impossible. Here the dead are raised, of course, which certainly you have to be a supernaturalist to do that. And if you can believe that, then you can travel in space too, <coughs> you know, in some ways. So but let's, not, let's, not, uh, let's uh, uh, not get into that. Let's just say, where, where, what's your sense of, of, of these two texts? Where does it go? Does it go down to earth? Uh, does he come? Uh, to earth or does he go there and my my sense is that that it ends here that the movements in John and the movement in 1 Thessalonians 4 are both he comes and he takes the redeemed and they go and they and they are going to be with him that that would be my first uh, first choice does anyone want to to comment on that well there is a point to all of this you know so <coughs> uh, so, now here is another one then, the final final one, before we put something on our timeline, uh, or just two more slides here, I guess. Uh, Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is with mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe... Uh, every tear from their eyes. Now, where are we now? And this is a revelation text. So this was sort of the Gospel of John and, and, and a little of Paul. But where is revelation? Now, we, now this, is, this is where it ends. The journey ends here, doesn't it? So, so uh, uh, the question is, can you use the term where I am to meet mean heaven. Can you use the term to be with them to mean, uh, to mean earth? That's the sort of constellation I would like to propose here. I'm, I'm actually proposing that. Yes. It doesn't say it in the verses I have given you here, but it says it in verses 1 and 2, that I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven coming from heaven, from God, to earth, and there it ends. And now God is sort of, there is a big, this is a big moving van, you know, because, you know, God is moving too, in a sense. So, so, uh, so there is a movement 
there is a movement from heaven to earth in Revelation 2. It's just, you know, where does it belong? Where do we do? How, how do we do this sort of uh, spatial stuff? Well, let's just uh, uh, see here what I'm suggesting then, and then uh, you will work on this yourself. When Jesus says, they will be with me, the spatial referent is heaven. That's my suggestion. When Revelation says that God will be with them, the spatial referent is the new earth, is the earth. Now, these are not mutually exclusive. These are certainly complementary. This is just to map out the, the spatial parameters of the final human journey. That's, that's what we're, we're doing. And there is marital imagery there. There is nuptial, how do you say nuptial? Nuptial imagery in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 21, where there is a wedding uh, getting ready in chapter 19, and then there is a sort of like a consummation of, of sorts in, in 21 because the city has made herself ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, so there is, there is a, there, that, that I think would support that, that implicitly at least there are these movements in Revelation too. So these, these are, uh, these are uh, eschatological scenarios that, uh, that I think are widely diffused in the in the New Testament. Well, that's that's excellent. Yes, it it should end on earth. You think it should end on earth? Well, it definitely does end on earth. The narration is definitely that, and it is you know the way we as we will see when we when we get to the real, the real. Uh, what should I say? We've done all we've done so far has been the ugly part of Revelation. But when you get to the beautiful part of it, the last two chapters of this book, then it's very much earth-centered. It's very much, you know, redeeming all of creation-centered. So, uh, so the story is, uh, is uh, you know, what lies ahead there is, is, is going to be, to be both, uh, I think, quite uplifting. And, and there will still be some surprises even on the last two chapters. So let's move on then and then put... Uh, here is my proposal for the timeline uh, when the second coming happens. Second coming is here. So there is still some movement after that. This is the first coming of Jesus. This is the incarnation. And here is the second coming. And this then could be the third coming. But there is, it isn't really third coming because, because there is no separation after that, Paul says, we shall always be with the Lord. There is no going away anymore. So it doesn't make sense to call it the third coming of Jesus because there is no separation between, between Jesus and, and the redeemed. So, well, these are proposals. And, and we will then, <clears throat> then uh, I, will, I will make a comment on the significance of, of adding it up like this uh, when we have done the timeline more completely. Now, the next concept we will do is the concept of the great ordeal, the concept of the great tribulation, and put that into our timeline. The great ordeal, we read about that in one of the intermissions. This is in the intermission between the sixth and the seventh uh, seal, in the first of those revelatory cycles in the book of uh, book of Revelation. Then one of the elders addressed me, Revelation seven thirteen to 15. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? 
I said to him, now this is a great pedagogue, by the way, the person who does this, because uh, one of the elders addressed me. See the question, there is a question raised by the person who is most in the know, you know, which is not a bad way to, to teach. Who are these robed in white? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, he was just seeking an opportunity to, to teach a thing or two. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. Uh, and the Old Testament background for the notion of the great ordeal is what? Where do we go to in the Old Testament? Because the notion of a great ordeal is also widely diffused in the New Testament. You find the no that notion in the Synoptic Apocalypse in, uh, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Uh, so the, this is not unique to, to Revelation in the New Testament, but where is the Old Testament antecedent for for this notion. Yeah, you have, more, you have, you have uh, more than one place to go, but the most explicit text is probably Daniel. Uh, at that time, Michael, in Daniel 12.1, at that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So, uh, so where are we going to put the great ordeal uh, with reference to the millennium? We're just doing timeline stuff. So you will put the, uh, you will put the great ordeal uh, before. So let me put in my timeline here in case... So, so here is the second coming. Now, that is not uh, universally held, what we're saying here. This is a, these are disputed things. This is before, and this is after. And you are putting the great ordeal here. Okay, now any comments on this? You want to, to just... Uh, uh, sort of vote this through or discuss it. <laughs> where, where is the, in dispensational theology, where is the great ordeal in dispensational theology? I think it is, it is here. It is mostly here. There, there are two, there is a rapture that the rapture saves you from the, from the great ordeal. But when, when Jesus comes in, that, in those paradigms, when Jesus comes back, he comes to earth and stays on earth. Because, because in the dispensational and in all, most of the millennial schemes, the thousand years have a good connotation. It is a positive connotation. It is in some ways like a golden age. A golden age idea about the millennium. And, and uh, the alternative here that, that has been, we have talked about here, has tended more to see the the thousand years as quite something quite different from that you know and it's not a golden age it is really 
really uh, uh, not you know quite the opposite of that so so uh, so there are there are many uh, differences of detail here but even in a dispensational paradigm the second coming of sorts happens before the millennium now there is a post millennial in the Pres- presbyterians tend to be post millennialist or amillennialists so there are there are amillennial uh, and the post-millennial. The post-millennial means that the second coming is after the millennium, I think. Anyway, l- now let's add a few more things here and then see just where, where it leads. Now, to the ceiling, the notion of the ceiling. Uh, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, uh, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth and the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. So where are we going to put the sealing on our timeline? What's the purpose of the sealing? What's the purpose of the sealing? I mean, we're just doing retrospectives here. We've, we've done this. Well, the ceiling has something to do with the Great Tribulation. There is a Great Tribulation. And so in order to get through that part, you have to, God mobilizes. You know, he has, to, he has to make some things clear. He has to fortify his people for that, for that uh, time period. So, you know, you could say, the, you know, in the rapture paradigm, then people will be removed from the scene of action in the sealing paradigm. And I'm not exactly sure how dispensational theology does that. But in the sealing paradigm, you are not raptured, but you are kept. You are preserved. You are, you know, made, made to, to stand in, the, in that period. So if we, if we now go on to the timeline, then, then we have the second coming, which we probably should have we should have made the second coming, uh, you know, taken it out from, we should have put, uh, put it more as a point in time. And then uh, these are events before the millennium. So we need to edit that. We need to edit that uh, setup a little bit. Okay, we'll go on. I just want to, to do Armageddon here too while we're at it. Why not? <laughs> Armageddon in the in the uh, bowl sequence, we have argued strenuously in this in this class that the bowl sequence preserves the notion of demonic agency. That was my theologically the most important point you can make. Now the usual view of the bowl sequence is that now the opposite side has sort of given up the ghost, and now God is the only acting subject, and God is the one who makes the bowl plagues happen. But in the sixth bowl, there is plenty of activity on the side of the demonic. So the notion that God is the only acting subject in, in the bowl sequence is resoundingly defeated, I will say, by the sixth bowl, uh, where you see not just some demonic agency, but you see demonic agency at its zenith. You see it more in a sort of concentrated, uh, completed manner, more than, uh, more than at any point prior. So, and I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet, 
These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, we're just doing timeline stuff here. We're not doing spatial stuff. You know, where was that? <coughs> because in many, many paradigms, this is a place, this is a geographic location in, in Israel, and there is an ex- a, a very Israel-centered way of reading these, these messages uh, that, <coughs> that we have not, not explored in detail. Otherwise, we, if we were to do all of these things in detail, we would... It, we would have to, we would go into the millennium. <laughs> so, uh, so just to see, see, some things are coming to a head. That's what we're saying, that there is something before the thousand years that seems to come to a head, that the second coming is a line of demarcation, an extremely important line of demarcation in the whole story, as it were. Something is coming to a head. And if you think about it that way, that what is actually being described here in these verses in Revelation 16, 13, 14, and 16 is the great ordeal. That is the great ordeal. And, 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 and it's just another way coming at it from another angle. And they are, because here the demonic are pulling out all, all the stops, as it were. And then, and then you have this notion of Armageddon. So, on such a timeline again, then the, the great ordeal, uh, I mean, the, these, these events here, these, these, uh, uh, Image, this imagery, they are all interrelated. They are all sort of circling around the same type of, same, same reality, uh, you might say. Now, why is it there is something that comes to an end before the millennium, uh, that we can say clearly comes to an end before the millennium? There is an end of the surrogate powers, and the beast was captured. This is a premillennial reality. The, uh, I think that is quite unambiguous. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of, fi- the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, so here is the end of the surrogate powers. Then Satan is bound, and then there is the millennium. Isn't that how the story goes? That's how the story goes. So here is what well, the way I am trying to represent this, then, that, that in, before the millennium you have the great ordeal, you have the sealing, you have Armageddon, and you have end one. There is a one, you know, one ending there, the end of the surrogate powers. That ends before the thousand years. And then at the second coming, all the redeemed, they go where? Well, we tried to do that at the beginning. So that's kind of a premise for the whole thing, where, you, where what happens at the second coming is extremely important to, for, for these paradigms. That's, that goes without saying. <clears throat> so after the millennium, 
The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now you could, could you merge these? Could you sort of conflate them? I suppose you could. But here is how, uh, here is what, what will sort of be the, the, the paradigm that will have to be edited then. There is an ending, something ends. Something really big ends before the second coming of Jesus. Something huge ends before the second coming of Jesus. But it is not the definitive ending. There is an ending too. There is a first resurrection. There is a second death. You know, all those things that we have talked about in Revelation 20. So, but this would then be the, be the, uh, the, the sort of layout of, in relation to, to the thousand years. And then, where, uh, let's put this in there too then. Uh, and now, let's have one of you read from the audience. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay, where should this belong? Where does this belong? Well, the final message then belongs... Uh, the final message is intimately related to the reality of the great ordeal. The final message is in some, in some ways a sealing message. Sort of a, a message that is going to help clarify the options here. So it seems to me... That, that's unambiguous, that the final message has to be premillennial. Uh, uh, and then let's do one more thing. Then th- there is this text that we haven't uh, yet read in Revelation 22:11. Let him who does wrong continue to be, do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. You find this text in Revelation 22 in a sort of narrative no man's land with respect to the rest of the stuff that has been discussed in Revelation 22, because now we are in the new earth reality. But where should you put this? So what here then? Great ordeal, sealing, Armageddon, final message, final message related to the sealing, and the final opportunity. All of these things are pre, pre, uh, pre the second coming. That's what I wish to say. So that that what's what's what is what is the meaning of this the meaning of this is that is that all that is truly important happens which side of the second coming all all that where there are sort of variables that are influential that can be influenced one way or another where do they happen they happen before the second coming see that's what I, my problem with the millennial paradigms is that the, the other millennial paradigms introduces a, a new sort of a new reality where things are going, where things are, are a, a new a new behind a new benign reality, a new sort of opportunity, you might say. Whereas it seems like the Book of Revelation throws it all into here. And what is happening after that then is not, 
it's not that it is not important, but it is in some ways that it is, uh, that uh, the really important things are, are pre pre the second coming. Yes, and Ralph Thompson, he sent me. I decided to stop using your uh, doctor title here, so now I took away your doctor title, because in because in in the in the um, fellowship when we meet as believers. When we should meet without titles. You know, we don't need titles when we meet as believers. We are, that, that, is, a, that is a nuisance. So let's take that away. <laughs> here is what, what, here is a way of looking at it. In the pre, <clears throat> in a sort of timeline of judgment, that there is a pre-advent judgment reality, decision judgment. And then in between the thousand years when the saints relay, uh, rule with Christ, you could call that an explanatory judgment. And afterwards, in the post-millennial reality, your term distributive judgment and specifying non-retributive judgment, I think, has, is, a, is a term that, that is quite usable. Now, for all these terms, there is a revelatory reality. The judgment, the quality of the judgment in the book of Revelation in all these faces aims to reveal something. And here is a, 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 now the last two slides we will have time for. Uh, the human decision and the divine decision correlate. There is never a divine decision only on the concept, clarifying the concept of judgment. The divine action is subject to review even. If you are right, if, if Ralph Thompson is right and others who have thought along those lines, if the thousand years is a sort of review period, uh, then the divine decision is in, even subject to review. Till the very last moment, the human action in judgment looms larger than the divine action. What, what happens, what transpires on the human side? There is always action on the human side right down to the final events in Revelation 20. And I'll read these statements from Chucky Lill and then we will stop. The judgment being never juridical, but revelatory. It is not the expression of the servile terror of men, but their comprehension of the divine reality. And Shakilul again, who was not a theologian, but who does excellent an excellent reading of Revelation, I think. The judgment at this moment, you know, sort of looking back on the whole thing, the judgment as, at this moment is then to be what one has actually wished to be, but seeing it in the light of God, what it was. So to be what one actually wished to be, but in the judgment you see, you get perspective on what that was, what one wished to be. So that again prioritizes, the theology of this then is the theology that prioritizes the human choice. We might just do a few of the last slides next time and then we, we, we will move into Revelation 21. Thank you very much.